Hello and welcome to the Seliman Podcast with me, Sam Wilkin. We're trying something a little bit different this time. I, I wanted to investigate the relationship between a farmer and also a producer. So a producer who makes the final product that we enjoy. So a cheesemaker or in this case, uh, a cured meat specialist. So I spoke to my friend Adrian Isatribi who runs Crown and Q Meats, which is a rather wonderful uh producer of British charcuterie, so British cured meats using heritage recipes, uh, modern interpretations, but using heritage breeds, uh, sustainably farmed animals. It's really important to Adrian the provenance of the meat that she uses and, and she has really close working relationships with the farmers that she uses. She describes herself as the managing director, pork whisperer and fearless heroine behind Crown and Q. And she introduced me to Rebecca Hosking. So Rebecca Hosking, if you go to her website, she describes herself as naturalist, photographer, wildlife camera woman, filmmaker, campaigner, presenter, regenerative farmer, farm director and agri-wilder. She's actually that and so much more. It was great to speak to both of them. Um, Rebecca started out uh, as a farmer's daughter on the Devonshire farm that she grew up on. And then she went to university and ended up uh, working in natural history department for the BBC, going around the world, making nature documentaries. And that was really her area of true interest. And she saw there was an opportunity to create a farm that did things differently. And along with uh, a fellow uh, uh, maker of uh, natural history programs with the BBC, Tim Green, she set up Village Farm. Now, Tim and Rebecca were both in a working relationship and a romantic relationship, and they were best friends. And very sadly, Tim died in an accident on the farm. Uh, We talk about that very briefly at the beginning. Um, And that caused uh, uh, the village farm to too close uh, it was just too much for one person to to handle but that hasn't stopped Rebecca becoming an extremely vocal advocate for agri-wilding for regenerative farming for sustainability and just being a really really good person really interesting person to listen to talk so two of my favorite food and farming people in one place what could possibly go wrong well nothing so we chatted for at least two hours so I was left with the daunting task of deciding what to cut out so I thought we'd, what we'd do is have a two-parter rather than go for the usual 20-minute, 30-minute thing and you'd lose so much of the brilliant things they were saying. I think we'd do two-parter this week and next week and you get to hear them talk. So I'm going to shut up and let them do the talking. Uh, so it's Adrian Isatribi and Rebecca Hosking for the Seliman Podcast. I suppose the best way of describing conventional agriculture is the best way to describe regenerative agriculture. In conventional agriculture, you fight the natural world you suppress it you use chemicals machinery and fossil fuel to to just nuke it out and, and push it down into the form you want it to to grow your animals and crops with regenerative agriculture you're working with the mediums of the natural world and you're working with um, well light sun, um, sun water the nutrients in the soil but also the biodiversity above the soil as well so you're working with nature to create your food and this really interested us but there was hardly anyone in the country doing it so that's what we did and because a very long story short we got a tenancy in 2014 at um, Village Farm which was a coastal farm in the tip of South Devon and we were going great guns we took on this sort of nuked out arable farm and we were converting it and we turned um, I think it was 80 acres of arable into wildflower meadow we planted 16,000 trees in two years 
uh, we dug series of ponds, we were um, letting our hedgerows go back up, we were having studies from the RSPB and also other organisations were studying the baselines of our insects and our birds and these were all increasing and it was going great guns and one of the ways we were doing it was to sell to artisan chefs and artisan craft people and hence that's how I met Adrian at that point but sadly what happened with us was we were going so well and then in two seven, um, 2017 a tragic really horrific my best friend Tim was killed on a tractor on the farm and I tried to carry on as you do um, but it was incredibly hard and I started to review everything we were doing um, and the land was a cruel piece of land it was very coastal land very steep and now I didn't have any time off because Tim was gone and people were really concerned about my own health and I was working 16 hour days, seven days a week, no time off. Um, and there was a lot of family and friends said, you've just got to stop, which was the most horrific thing for me to do, to, to admit to. Yeah, a huge shift and, and losing that person as well, the way you've described it, it's a kind of, a, you know, symbiotic, you know, yeah. you're kind of bouncing ideas yeah. off one another. That's, that's incredibly yeah. hard. I mean, you know, we, we sort of, I haven't expected, you know, we were best friends then we were a couple then we realized that didn't work and then we went back to best friends but we had each other for 17 years so to have that that bond of and I found it so hard afterwards not to have like you said he was the person I went to with all my ideas and you bang it back and forth and without him there you just you'd say an idea and it would just go off into ether and you would just, you felt so alone so um yeah i came away from it all but i have to say it's so nice because Adrian has found me online and we it was a lovely burgeoning relationship between us and we and she came to visit the farm so she did see it and we have a lot of ethos shared i came into the story because in the really classic way of food in i would say any country but particularly in the uk small island you know many small islands a friend of a friend basically was involved um, with Tim and Bex and then knew me through one of my neighbors at Spot Terminus, which is the collab, you know, I mean, the community of food producers that I work in. Um, and she knew about my passion for collaboration. And I always use that term because I think one of the, the things that has hurt our food chain so much is we think of each thing as this discrete unit on its own, you know what I mean? Like us against the world. And it has ruined, you know what I mean? This, the, the, the capacity that of every stage to uplift the other. And then ultimately you end up with something really, you know, powerful at the end for the final, final consumer. When you make it into these little separate nodes, mm. you know what I mean? It's, it's shattered, it's jagged, it's not a, it's not a flow. Um, and so she knew that I really liked having that relationship with my farmers and she was working on village, um, on village farm, uh, and introduced us and I did go down to visit and I have to say I was six, seven months pregnant at the time. And there's this fabulous, I remember the visit so clearly, but there's this fabulous picture of me wearing full gaiters that like, I think must've belonged to Tim because that was the only way that I could, you know, get my girth. Um, with this just huge belly in the middle of a wild, wild meadow. Um, and it really gave you a sense uh, of how, how we can work 
when I say collaboration across the supply chain, how even at the first beginning in the farm, you can work collaboratively with, collaboratively with the environment you're in. As Rebecca said, like, it's not you against the, 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 the earth. It's you working together to create something. And you really saw that in action there. The thing, I mean, we, we were talking, Adrienne and I were talking the other day, and it, it's about the whole story of um, from the soil up. You know, you're on this whole journey. And, and the, the reason I loved, the, the sad thing to admit was they were far fewer people like Adrian we were dealing with than, and this wasn't just craftspeople, it was chefs as well, that actually came to visit the farm and came to see our story. I mean, the worst, I would say, are when you phone, you know, because we we were doing direct sales and I still do, now I do direct sales of the wool instead. But um, when we were doing direct sales of the meat, the worst was, what's your price? They didn't care about where you raised it, how you raised your animals, anything like this, or your landscape or what you were doing, just what's the price? Which was just so soul destroying. Whereas Adrian, as you right, she rightfully just reminded me, she got on the whole bib and tucker and got in with the sheep. And I remember she wanted us to teach her what we were feeling for for an animal that was ready yeah. to go to the abattoir. Um, and she really wanted to understand. And we did have a few people like that, but there were so few. But I think this whole journey, yes, being, I think. It's interesting because I will talk about it from a farming perspective. So I think the most interesting farmers are the ones that have either gone away and done something and come back or their first generation in. Because one, they don't have the shackles of the community. I mean, I do have the shackles coming in from the farming community, but I have the novel approach of being out and seeing different ideas and coming back again. And because of that, you can fight the traditions of this is how it's always been done, which this is how it's always been done is somehow by the agri-tech companies being swung into this is how we're doing it now. And it's really quite destructive. And now you, and forever. Yeah. Um, um, if you carry on going this way, which we're all doing, you know, if you carry on going this way, then you're in the community and we do it together whereas if you step outside and you go okay i'm not going to do this i see it's damaging and i'm going to do it a different way you have to have a bit of braveness about you because i i can see how first generation farmers can do it because they're not linked into the community too much but coming from a community of farmers you do have to be brave because essentially what you are saying subconsciously and you don't mean to is what you guys are doing is wrong and you you know just by acting differently you say that i know last week because i did listen to tim williams's interview last week and i know you were asking something similar of why are all the farmers doing this which is a question that a total noob would ask to be fair it's, it's a very common but i question. get it all the time as well yeah. because people because when i say you know that better high welfare farming leads to better taste mm -hmm. people are like well then why doesn't everyone do it and mm -hmm. I, what do you answer? Yeah, I think the, the answer is, is because we have so much pressure in the farming community not to do that. I know it sounds yeah. daft, but we have so many middlemen making money from us, pushing us not to do that. So it's really brave to stand up and do it because not many are. The whole point of an animal in my book um, and raising an animal is right from the dirt and the soil.
all the way up through. It's from the part, because I was a sheep farmer and I am, you know, I still got sheep. It's from the day you decide to put the ram in with the ewes, the day you decide that that's going to be your lambing date and you're going to be bringing them up through. And I actually think personally, my own belief is if you're a livestock farmer, you need to go to the abattoir and, and at least watch it through a couple of times. Um, and and I've had, you know, other farmers go, oh, Rebecca, that's just sentimental. You know, you're... and it isn't because you are making your money from that animal's death. And if you can't face that fact, then you shouldn't be in the industry. And, and that, I mean, that is where, sorry, I, that's where I want to leap in because I think yeah. that that's where I end up on. I'm the closest, if you argue about that chain, to the final consumer. And so that conversation about, about death um, is is one that I have a lot, and I I read this fabulous thing. I, I almost hate to 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 do a plug <laughs> with someone else while we're on Sam's show, but um, I know you know the Sustainable Dish um, and Sacred Cow, the Sacred Cow book, and I think she was on this podcast. But um, she she posted this thing that I just loved earlier today, um, which was um, a quote from Diana Rogers, which is um, our fear of death is at the heart of a lot of our bias against meat. People see death as the end of a line instead of a piece of the circle. All life has to come out of death. There are lots of really strong environmental arguments for the way that she's advocating, the way that you're both talking about farming and food. But she said the moment that you get unstuck, and, and she says, I now won't enter a debate with what she described as an ethical vegan. So an ethical vegan is fundamentally the person who disagrees with the, the death element of this. So I suppose that's that is always my stumbling block as well in cheese, in, in, in you know, livestock. That that is the point where you kind of trip over a little bit. But I like that because that is part of the circle. And what you do, Adrienne, is it's not, you know, you go your post abattoir, you're actually treating your product with huge respect and almost reverence actually the way that you speak about your products when you come in and do a tasting in the restaurants and things like that rebecca you're holding your hand up you want to jump in there's a lot of entomology um the the, the wording the wording that we use around this and we i wouldn't say what we handed to adrian was a product you know i would say it was meat and i would call it meat i would never mm. call one of my animals a product this is yeah. where Rebecca and I really agree on etymology. Yeah. This is so powerful, the way that we speak about what we eat. Yeah. And so, you know, and to, to finish off, you know, the thing of going to see the abattoir, that was the thing for me, is one day I realised I couldn't go in there. And that day was the day I stopped producing meat. I would hold every farmer to say that you need to respect that animal all the way through, and we get into Adrian's world as well, is you you do the best for them you possibly can throughout their lives you you give them the longest life you possibly can because there are so many speedy horrible ways of speaking up their point to the abattoir when they get to the abattoir you you research your abattoirs you make sure you get the most and i do believe there's a difference between a good and a bad death and a good abattoir and a bad abattoir because i've been in them and if you can get on that kill floor and see your animals go through it makes you really realize that you have taken this animal's life. Now it has to be for a bloody good reason. And the bloody good reason is someone like Adrian, the other end, who you know is going to not mix that flesh with a load of crap, is actually going to make the animal um, 
dignify the animal in creating an amazing dish, which is going to be really nutritious for people, really healthy for people. If I knew my lambs were going into a dono kebab that people are going to get pissed and throw up in 10 minutes time, where is that? You know, the, just an awful thing. So it's having that respect for your animal all the way through and having the highest respect for it. And when you do that, you search out people and you find people like Adrian because they give that respect to the animal all the way to the end, to the end customer. You said something really poignant, um, Bex, which was, you know, the first thing that so many people will come to you and say as a farmer is, well, what's your price? Mm. Um, and in, in my variation on the answer of whether everyone should be a generalist or, or whether we should be in specialization, so much of that comes down to the way that we manage uh, quality and value and that relationship because where do we get this term specialization I mean Ford right like mm -hmm. it is about in you know the more discreet and tiny your focus mm -hmm. the more efficient the more price effective etc so why do you find farmers who only want to raise sheep and do nothing but sheep and have all the sheep you know you can't you can't build an empire on on, on nothing but sheep so for me, I end up trying to find these farms that are doing it as part of a larger vision. Once you start to reevaluate what the relationship between quality and price and value and, 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 and ethics are, you find farmers who realize that they can't have 10,000 pigs and maximize the value of their land. They have to actually um, scale it back have a handful of, of, of maybe this style of animal, and then you have another handful of that style of animal that work collaboratively together. And then you have this portion of your land that you're really devoted to focusing on reintroducing a natural flora and fauna, because then, do, do you see what I mean? So the, the, the specialization, although it's odd because I talk about the way I came into doing cured meats as my move into specialization. <laughs> I think it's important to have focus, but you can't lose sight of the bigger picture. We've been so sold by the supermarkets that we have expensive food, and you, every time you turn the TV on, you know, saves you a bit more and it's a little less. And we get this patter the whole time subconsciously, but actually, if you look at our food prices, I mean, no surprises, it's um, America has the cheapest food in the world but then it's Singapore and then it's us. But also you talk about expense um, and we just look at it in the financial level and not in the ecological level and in the workplace level and in people's, you know, in the, you look at um, farming today in the UK, it, I think it has, it still is holding off. It's not the first, it's the second highest suicide rate of any industry in the country because of depression. Um, and it's because of the low rates. And then we complain about the subsidy system and the subsidy system is a double-edged sword because it, it, it's almost like it keeps farmers on, it's almost like a farmer's benefit, I would say. But without it, there would be, it's, it's a really hard one because without it, I know, you know, you could look at New Zealand and you look at the intensification over in New Zealand because they took it away so quick. And then the, the wildlife there has been completely nuked because of it. So when we talk about expensive food, there's the financial expense, but there's the ecological expense and there's the human expense and there's the animal expense, which we don't talk about as well. All of those mm -hmm. are an expense. So 
what's wealthy is food you know and rather than having expense perhaps we should be talking about food wealth and what's a wealthy piece of food and a piece of food that's being raised so tenderly that's being raised with all the ecology around it which has had it thought about for how it's being um, killed that's then gone into a prized beautiful um, food that just has gorgeous real natural ingredients in it well that's a wealth of food rather than a expensive food i think what you've just put across there is is a nuanced argument for why food should be considered in a different way in this country and and we three sitting here would fully agree with that mm-hmm. my the thing that keeps flashing up for me is the reality of how a consumer behaves mm-hmm. and a consumer behaves culturally in this country i mean as you quite clearly you know the amount of your income going on food is quite a lot lower than a lot of other countries is, is we look at the price now there is this fear with american imports coming in that that actually people are not going to even look if you know if there are changes to labeling people are not going to look they're just going to look at the price mm-hmm. but i think what strikes me and it, and this again is naivety perhaps but the way that you're advocating for farming is is a very low input method now anyone writing any kind of business plan for anything looks at what their expenses are looks at what their inputs are and that will adjust their final gross margin so if your inputs are incredibly low and you sell your product at a sensible price then your margin will be greater so that seems i'm being simplistic but that seems a sensible business model and it also achieves a price that is more attractive for the the consumer so i guess two questions one what am i missing uh because i suspect a lot and two how do we get to that stage if it is achievable i think i think the actual price isn't the problem it's the means of buying 10 years ago i know it was around about 83 percent of all of our food was bought in supermarkets so i've got a horrible feeling it's probably gone up now um people Except that i do think that the that, that math will have changed on account of yeah of of the of that thing that everyone's tired of talking about yeah. hearing about it yeah exactly i think within since march should we say that's right yeah since march <laughs> since march i think that's drastically changed and i know from my friends that's drastically changed in the agricultural world because they're because now we're all at home and because you isn't there the saying, if you do it for 10 weeks, then you can break a habit if you do something for 10 weeks. And I think yeah. because we were there for that 10 weeks, people are ordering and direct mailing and bringing this straight in. But beforehand, there was this culture, and I really hope we don't go back to it, of only going to what's on the shelves of the supermarket, which you think is a huge variety, but actually so limited. It, as you, you guys know, it's so limited. Yeah. It's just got different packaging. It's the same products. It's made by the same manufacturers. It's just got a few different ingredients, but the same, same stuff. I think the way, the, the thing that farms and doing direct selling into the market, you do get, you do get um, the general public out there looking for farms like ours, but they're in the minority. So it wasn't that when you put our box of land together, it was hugely expensive. It wasn't. It was just a different form of buying because people are used to buying a piece of meat each week where we were saying you buy it as a box, you know, and so we were relying on people to have fridge freezers. I, I even know of a Cornishman who was a Cornish farmer who was selling fridge freezers with his lamb on his first one. You can do it. <laughs> I love that. That's, that is a deal. I would also have said it's not it's not strictly that I'm 
I'm expensive, that the product is expensive. I think it's about the, as you said, when you look at the, you were talking about wealthy food. Mm. I think it's also, it's the expensive effort. Yeah. In order to go out and find Crowning Hue, to go out and find farms that are doing things like, you know, like Rebecca was doing, like the, like you are doing now with the Forever Flock. Like when you're seeking a source for purchase, when you have a need and you're looking to satisfy it, how far are you willing to go? How much effort are you willing to put in? And that's a cost for people. And also, can that I, has to be factored in. It is. And also, rather than accepting the foods, the prices we have, we have greatly in, um, deflated food prices. We, it, it sounds really, I find myself almost throwing up on my own words because I am thinking of food banks at this point while I'm talking about all of this. The, the, but I know of farmers that are going to food banks because they're so poor. So it's not that the farmers themselves are rich. Don't you know? It depends if they're tenant farmers. They're, I know of farmers that are poor as well and can't actually afford the food that they're selling. So there's this great, huge social imbalance within all of this, which is far greater than the three of us can sort out. But one <laughs> thing that I know from, say, when I was doing lamb, is you know you we were up against horrendous barn reared creep lambs so you you think of lambs being outside now even they're taken inside and when they have the creep fed lamb they've they are just fat they're filled with just horrific grain mix to get them to wait they've still got the baby cool on them because they're so young when they're going off to the abattoir and if i wanted to give my animals a decent life it meant I kept mine alive a lot longer. So the, the prices being deflated by these horrendous creep-fed animals. And then if you go to Smithfield in London, the cheap lamb that's coming in, that governs your price. So you can never go that much higher for the amount of months and actually years, in some cases, depending if it was mutton or hogget, I'm keeping my animals in a lovely life. I wasn't paid for that time that's where the poverty comes in so the it's essentially the night of the life you give your animal unless you have a secondary income which we started to do you can't afford to give them that nice long life because you're up against cheap short turnaround round food thanks for listening to the Salomon podcast uh so as i said at the beginning this is a two-parter so listen out for next week where we finish off this conversation around farming around produce around a regenerative approach around sustainability and everything in between uh, thanks for listening see you next time the Salomon podcast is produced by me sam wilkin if you want to know more about Salomon, go to Salomon sam on instagram and twitter or check out the website, salomon.co.uk.